Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The year is 1997. Paul, I just feel like I'm always starting over with another movie that really deserves a full podcast episode. This movie, Jackie Brown. everyone and welcome to unspooled i am paul Shear. i am joined as always by amy nicholson we love chatting about movies we're talking about the best movies of all time we're trying to figure out if the movies that people just assume are the best are really that good or do we just remember them that way yes, uh, i'm coming hard. to this conversation as a film critic i write for a lot of places including the new york times and paul my goodness has there ever been a man who is what a sex tuple threat as you I well look, I I love to do a lot of things, and uh, and watching movies is on that list. As you can tell by my Letterbox account, uh, I love talking movies with you, and I love when we can find these little areas that open up doorways. And we've been in this Elmore Leonard uh, area for the last two weeks, and we're going to go into what arguably is one of the best Elmore Leonard adaptations, at least according to Elmore Leonard. So I think that he's probably the person you want to trust on this one. Yeah, and it's a film done by the person who wrote, as some people have called it, the best Elmore Leonard movie that wasn't even an Elmore Leonard movie, which is true romance. There's this synergy happening here between a screenwriter, a novelist, and a screenwriter who's also a director. Another thing we're going to talk about is all the twists and turns, not in this movie, but in how this movie got made because everybody that you talk to has a different perspective on how they were cast, why choices were made. It seems like over the years, this movie has become a legend in at least the way that people talk about it. But when it first came out, it was not well received at all. And people let Quentin Tarantino know. Yeah, which is why I'm really excited to get into this. I mean, my policy on what is the Quentin Tarantino movie tends to be whatever is the last Quentin Tarantino movie I just watched. And the one that I had just watched right before this was actually Death Proof. 
And I could make an argument for Death Proof being the absolute best Quentin Tarantino movie. And then I wow. saw this one again. So I keep switching. Oh, yeah. Justice for Death Proof. Justice for Death Proof. Well, Amy, I can't blame you. And I can't blame anybody for anything I unspool it. <laughs> The year is 1997, and Quentin Tarantino is in an incredibly unusual position for a director. It's been three years since Pulp Fiction made him a giant star. Now, how big? In 1994, when they published the screenplay, the screenplay of True Romance, they didn't even put a picture of True Romance on the cover. They put a picture of Quentin Tarantino on the cover. People cannot wait to see how he is going to top Pulp Fiction. I mean, there's tons of anticipation, smothering anticipation. And paradoxically, at the same time, people are totally sick of Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) I mean, this is kind of his fault. He has been telling fans of, you know, softer old school movies like Remains of the Day that they can fuck right off and get out of his theater. Uh, He gave the finger to the one, the one person who booed when Pulp Fiction won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. He is being called the enfant terrible of cinema. That's probably the French being really mad at him. Um, But mostly, however, people are sick of Tarantino because Tarantino has been using his clout to try to act. And people are not having it. Like here in From Dust Till Dawn, when he plays this psychopathic rapist and murderer who's trying to explain why he killed the latest girl that he killed to future Out of Sight star George Clooney. Before you flip out, okay, let me just explain what happened. Yeah, exp- right? Explain it to me. I need an explanation. What is the matter with you? There's nothing wrong with me, brother. That woman tried to escape and I did what no, I had to do. No, that woman wouldn't have said shit if she had a mouthful of it. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. After you left, she became a completely different person. Yeah. People are like, eh, huh. And as Quentin says, people have been taking me for granted a little bit. So what's he going to do now? Well, the winner for Best Oscar for Original Screenplay can do anything he wants. But he surprises people by saying he's going to adapt someone else's work. To date, the one and only time he's ever done something that wasn't completely his own The book is Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. It's a complicated story of a 40-something airline stewardess named Jackie caught smuggling cash for a murderous gunrunner named Ordell, who is going to be played by Sam L. Jackson. Jackie is trapped between Ordell and an ATF agent named Ray Nicolette. That's Michael Keaton again from last week's episode when we talked about him and Out of Sight. And the only one on her side is her bail bondsman, Max Cherry, played by Robert Forrester. Now, also involved are Ordell's cronies. It's a dumb and explosive Lewis, that's Robert De Niro, and Ordell's stoner girlfriend, I mean one of his girlfriends, Melanie. This is played by Bridget Fonda. Quentin shifts the setting from Florida to South L.A., but his masterstroke is taking Jackie, who is white in the book, and casting his favorite 70s movie icon, Pam Greer, the star of Coffee and Sheba and Foxy Brown. With Pam in the movie, he changes the title to Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown opens on Christmas Day, 1997, and people have no idea what to make of it. I mean, just listen to the very first question at the movie's press conference in Berlin. I didn't really go into this film expecting the usual Tarantino, but I am curious to know why it was so drawn out and, to my mind, indulgent. Well, was it, well I don't know. Was that, a, that sounded like more like a statement than a question. Was, what was the question? The enfant terrible is trying to grow up and people are not sure they want him to. 
Jackie Brown does okay at the box office. Not great, not embarrassing. Quentin does not get an adapted screenplay nomination. But over the years, Jackie Brown has ascended to become a lot of people's favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. His most patient, his fullest characters, his most warmth. So what was in the zeitgeist that Christmas day of 1997? Another man paying homage to a female icon that he adored. It is Elton John and Candle in the Wind. And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind. Never fading with the sunset when the rain set in. And your footsteps will always fall here along England's greenest hills. Your candles burned out long before your legend ever will. Paul, we have heard Candle in the Wind a lot on this show. This is because Candle in the Wind was number one for like 15 weeks. 15 weeks. It finally got knocked out by like Savage Garden. I mean, I think that Candle in the Wind is like the number one best-selling single of all time, unless you count Bing Crosby's White Christmas. There's a lot of back and forth and White Christmas is a little confusing. I'm still struck though by that clip you just played from Berlin because I think that articulated an attitude that people had about Quentin Tarantino. You said that we are tired of Quentin Tarantino. And what I think really was happening was people had aped his style so much by the time that Jackie Brown came out that we assumed Quentin Tarantino had a style that was larger than the two movies that he put out. And at this point, Tarantino, I think, was still finding not his voice, but what he wanted to explore. Like, we didn't know. We, I think we expected every movie to feel and look like Pulp Fiction. I was one of those people, yeah. Yeah, I like this theory, because that means that the press people are like, wait, 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 I just came up with this whole Tarantino-esque adjective, and now you're telling me I have to get a new one? And I, right. I would feel a little remiss, by the way, if I didn't play the answer. Tarantino wasn't there, but here is Robert Forrester and Samuel L. Jackson responding in tone. The kind of movies that uh, Quentin made before are Reservoir Dogs and uh, Pulp Fiction. He pushed the envelope in one direction, which is fast cuts and in your face. This makes Tarantino-esque a, uh, another thing. He brings the envelope, pushes it in the opposite direction, goes back to old-fashioned movie making, slows down the pace, gets right into the characters, and resurrects one of the favorite old-fashioned movie shots of all time, and that's the two-shot, where two guys stand in the shot and work. So the word Tarantino-esque will now mean something that it hasn't meant in the past, and that means slow the thing down and get into our characters and watch a, uh, a, a nicely developed movie. I love that. Sam Jackson, the best. Robert Forrester, <laughs> these guys do not mince words. Oh, they don't. Oh, they don't. Oh, they don't. Can I play you one more from this? I'm yeah, sorry. Sure. I was laughing so hard going through this interview. Let me just play this one when somebody really asks the wrong question to Samuel L. Jackson. Bridget Fonda calls you streetwise in this movie. Um, and that seems to be true. But still, I'd like to ask, have you um, some kind of intellectual approach uh, in, to playing a, a character too? Yes. Would you comment on that? No. That is 
infuriating. <laughs> I mean, I you could make an argument that in the gigantic career of Samuel L. Jackson, this is quite possibly in the top three best performances that he has. Oh, yeah. It's so good. It's It really is a scary performance. It's an interesting performance. The look, the way that he moves is unbelievable. And to kind of devalue him by like saying this movie is smarter. So he prepared for it differently. I mean, I don't even think this movie is smarter. It's like, oh my God. But it, it goes to show something that I feel like is always underneath the entertainment business, which is we don't want to see people do things differently. We want to feel like things are familiar and we want them to be familiar in a way where they are comforting, but not the same. And it's a hard like line to walk. I think we see that in reboots all the time. It's like, oh, you did that reboot a little too close to what it was, so it's not a good reboot. Oh, that reboot was good because you took what it was, but you gave me something new. It's like you're constantly caught in this world where you have to give enough of the old that it's not shocking, but give enough of the new that it feels different. And when you do something like Jackie Brown after Pulp Fiction, it's so shockingly different that you almost feel betrayed. And that's how I felt. I can speak to that as an audience member. I was like, what the fuck is this? I don't like 70s movies. Is this a 70s movie? God damn it. Why is it so fucking slow? Like, I couldn't tell you anything about this movie. I, I This movie was erased from my brain the minute I left. I was so angry and over it. And I am such an idiot because rewatching this movie a couple years ago and then even a couple months ago, I mean, it might be my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. I, I you I'm, might be one of those people. The one, yeah. yeah. It's an amazing movie. I mean, it's got warmth. It's got a style. It's slick. The plotting is really fun. It, And I think what I really love about it is how much of an ensemble it is. I mean, obviously, Pulp Fiction is an ensemble. You're in these chapters and you're going back and forth. But this is, everyone's interacting with each other. Everyone's coming in and out. And the worlds are very, very unique and divergent from each other, and it all just fits together perfect. I mean, this is a the work of a master chef cooking up a great meal that people are like, well, we wanted spaghetti. And they're not even hungry? looking at the meal. I know. I've met, there are I've so mentioned, many food metaphors. I know, I know. <laughs> you I'm really sorry. want spaghetti. This we may is have what deleted one of them, but you yeah. need Italian food. <laughs> I know. But you know what? I guess like I, I feel like we couldn't see past what we wanted to see what he gave us. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... 
I have a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. I mean, in a way, I do feel like there's almost this like psychological level underneath this film where Quentin Tarantino making a choice to adapt a book is kind of him being like, how do I get out of this? This like this want that people have for me, this pressure that people have around me of like, what's this guy going to do? What's this guy going to do? It's like adapting something for your follow up to Pulp Fiction is kind of almost the only way around this whole game of expectations. Because I don't know, maybe he's watching even what's happening to like Steven Soderbergh at the same time. People being like annoyed that Steven Soderbergh is getting weirder and weirder and less audience pleasy. And he's watching all these other people rise up too and being like, I have to set myself apart somehow. And they handled pressure in such different ways. You know, Soderbergh comes out of finally making a crowd pleaser with out of sight. And then it's just like banger, 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 banger. Watch me make all of these movies that you guys are going to love. And he makes like, so many Oscar-nominated gigantic movies in six years. And in six years after this, Tarantino doesn't do anything. He waits. He waits, he waits, he waits until he does Kill Bill. I mean, think about that. Soderbergh comes running out of the gate when he realizes he has the audience's love back. And Tarantino's like, I'm going to think about this. And the reaction to their movies isn't even that different box office-wise. They both make just under $40 million. You could almost even say that Jackie Brown is the bigger profitable hit because it only costs $12 million. And out of sight cost, I think, I think out of sight lost money. It did lose money. It did lose money. What we even call a hit is so strange in this moment. And then the juice it gives them and the pressure, you just really feel a director being like, how am I going to figure out who me is? Well, I also think you are trying to figure out who this director is when we don't really know him yet. We know him by his work, right? We know now that Quentin Tarantino, there is this love for pulp novels and and crime novels like Quentin Tarantino is a writer I mean he wrote the adaptation of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which is great if you're a fan of that movie it's a really fun read and he is working on other novels and wants to work on plays like he has this idea of his career and I think part of that is patience he knows he wants to make a limited number of movies he doesn't want to go bad essentially he doesn't want to spoil before his time and I don't think that people even realize that he had bought the rights to three different Elmore Leonard books. I mean, he was going to make Kill Shot. That was the one he really wanted to make. And that was actually made in 2008 with Diane Lane and Mickey Rourke. And he also bought Freaky Deaky along with Rum Punch. So he was sitting on these movies. Now, whether or not he was going to make them or maybe even Roger Avery was going to make them, they had bought these books to develop. And I thought that was really interesting. Like, this wasn't just like a reaction. This was something that, he wanted to do like he didn't fall into his lap. It wasn't forced on him. He was a fan of Elmore Leonard. And so much so he was afraid to let Elmore Leonard know the changes he was making. Like we mentioned, you know, Jackie is white in the book, change of black, uh, moved some things around, not major things. I mean, but he didn't want Elmore Leonard to tell him no. He was nervous that Elmore Leonard wouldn't like it. So he didn't really let Elmore Leonard in until everything was really locked. And Elmore Leonard has gone on to say that this is his favorite adaptation of any of his work. 
So it did work. Like, I think this is a perfect combination of a really visionary filmmaker with a brilliant writer and merging the two things together because Quentin Tarantino obviously takes Rum Punch, makes it his own, but it's also based on such a solid world and amazing characters. And I feel like that was my biggest takeaway is like, oh, wow, look at what Quentin Tarantino can add to somebody else's really good thing. Well, yeah, I mean, part of why he knows these characters so well is like, I mean, this is his relationship with Elmer Leonard, right? Like he started reading Elmer Leonard when he was a teenager in the 1970s. The first thing that he read was a book called The Switch. And now he has some stories about his history with The Switch. But first, I will just tell you that The Switch is a book that actually has so many of these same characters. It has Ordell. It has Melanie. It has Lewis. They're all in this book. Is that the movie that Ruthless People stole from or? No, it actually became a movie like in the 2000s, weirdly with Isla Fisher. Isla Fisher's like playing the Melanie part. Like Moe's Def is playing the Ordell part. I I actually even pulled a little bit from the trailer because you can hear that they still do like the same phone gag with Melanie. Should I get it? Do you want me to get it? Maybe you should get it. I'll get it. I'm getting it. I'm afraid Mr. Dawson isn't here right now. This Melanie with the big... The woman want to hang up the phone on us. They think it's a game. I'll call him. We need to make an impression. Melanie, is he upstairs? But really, so like the point is, is like he knew these characters, you know, 20 years before Jackie Brown even comes out, like because what happened is the summer of 1978. This is his story. He tried to shoplift the switch from Kmart here in Los Angeles, and then he got busted trying to steal it. So then he like came back later after he got busted and restole it and stole it again. That's version one. The second version of the story is that his mom caught him shoplifting the book and then grounded him for the summer. And then after he was ungrounded, he went back and bought the book. Either he's legal or he's a thief. Doesn't matter. He kind of likes playing the tough guy. But so these characters are people he grew up with. And then like Rum Punch, that book isn't written until he's finishing Reservoir Dogs, basically. So it's like there was even this 15-year gap in which Elmore Leonard was figuring out who these characters were. The Switch is basically like a prequel. I do want to call out something about The Switch, because you're right. It was remade with Isla Fisher. But did you know that in The Switch, Lewis and Ordell, they kidnap a millionaire's wife only to discover he doesn't want her back. And that plot was actually used in the 1986 movie, Ruthless People. And in the novel's sequel, Rum Punch, Lewis and Ordell complain that the movie producers stole their idea without (laughs) mentioning the movie by name. That's what it was. That's the connection. Gotcha. Well, and part of that, too, is that, like, the switch is where Ordell and Melanie meet. Melanie is basically, like, sleeping with the guy's husband, and then, like, Ordell comes to try to figure out why the husband isn't paying the money. Then then he meets Melanie. And this is sort of how they start hooking up, which kind of is why, like, in the book version of Rum Punch, Melanie is a lot older than Bridget Fonda. She's supposed to be, like, a woman in her late 30s. She's supposed to be kind of, like, older. It talks a lot about how her breasts are, like, crazy big for some reason. Like, huge, 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 huge breasts. And that's another change that, like, Quentin Tarantino makes in the casting that I actually think works really well. You would almost think, like... Oh, yeah. He just changes this girl who's like in a bikini and makes her younger. That's sure what all directors would do. But I think when you take the Melanie character, this other female lead, you make her younger and then you have her kind of like floating around the margins, like sleeping with men and like kind of trying to trick them away from their money. You get this like subtext of like all these guys think they deserve these blonde young women and they think they're entitled to them. And look what happens when you think you're entitled to these women. Like you can't necessarily like trust them. 
I think that Quentin Tarantino is doing something really deliberate in here with like with men and the women that they think they deserve. You know, that Jackie is a little bit too old. They want young women. And this like paranoia about being a woman growing older is just like all the way through here. A lot of the men in this movie aren't listening to women. They are just assuming that they will do whatever they say. And one of the best moments in this movie is Robert Forrester, like, listening to Jackie. Like, she talks about the Delphonics. He goes and gets a Delphonics tape. She has something to give. Ordell doesn't feel like that. Ray Nicolette doesn't think of Jackie as being smart or interesting. Doesn't No one really wants to take what these women have to say in. And that's why yeah. Jackie Brown gets away with it. And that's why, you know, Melanie is so easily killed. She's not a person to him. I mean, I that scene when Melanie is shot, I've forgotten that. And when I rewatched that, it took my breath away. I mean, because it's so brutal. It's out of nowhere. And it's so different than the traditional Quentin Tarantino violence. This is the movie where it has the smallest body count of any Quentin Tarantino movie. And when it happens in this movie, I'm just blown away by what De Niro is doing and watching that relationship between De Niro and her because De Niro and her, that's the other like quote unquote, like love story that's going on here. You know, if you want to put that as the parallel between Jackie and Max Cherry, we have Melanie and Lewis, right? They're, they're kind of figuring each other out. And I think it's a very different relationships, but I, I do think that they're parallel in a way. Lewis? Is it this aisle or is it the next one up? You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. You're positive? Don't seem sure to me. Hey, don't say... Don't say anything else, okay? Keep your mouth shut. Well... I mean, don't say one fucking word, okay? Okay, Lewis. Just where I said it was. Yeah, I mean, they're actually like Melanie and Lewis are a couple that does actually hook up, you know, in the course of the movie. Jackie and Max don't really until that last kiss. But there's something just so functional about like Mel and Lewis. You know, it's it's not really romantic. There's not really a connection. It's like an exchange. Whereas Jackie and Max are all about that connection. You know, the connection is like above everything else. The connection and the trust. They're trusting each other to pull off this heist. There is no trust to pull off this heist between Melanie and Lewis at all. And when he explodes on her like that, up until this point, you've kind of been taking Lewis for, I'm going to say granted, but it's not really for granted. You've been kind of considering him a dummy and he is a dummy. He's legitimately a dummy. I mean, this is a guy who we've seen, like, he doesn't know how to hang up a phone. He's, like, confused when he sees people more than once. He doesn't quite recognize them. He's had this whole conversation early on about, like, Beaumont. And then he's like, wait, who's Beaumont? He is not the brightest guy in the room. And I like how he plays all of that physically. Like, he's not being the loudest idiot in the room. He's being the quietest idiot in the room. He's even like watching one of the other girlfriends do the Diana Ross act. And he's like rocking in the chair really hard with his chin tucked in. And you're like, he's not saying he's high, but the way he's acting looks like he's high. Can we just say that 
Quentin Tarantino might be responsible for the two best performances of high characters, uh, besides Method Man and Red, <laughs> uh, which is Brad Pitt in True Romance. Oh, you know, so the, the guy who's on the couch all the time, just nailing it. And then this is another version of that. Like, making people high in movies is such an interesting thing, right? Because it's something that obviously most people can relate to on some level. If you get high, if you've been high, like, you know, how can you show this in a way that's realistic? I think that, like, Seth Rogen does a great job of that. It's like, it's not like you're in outer space. It's not like you're doing mushrooms, but it's like finding that level. You're like, oh, I don't know if this is real. You know, one of my favorite scenes, maybe it's in This Is 40, when they all get high and go see the Beatles show. Like, that to me is a perfect encapsulation of, like, older people getting high. Like, it's just heightened, but it's not like train spotting. This performance by De Niro is so understated. I really, sounds so stupid for me to say, but I'm really coming around on De Niro's later performances. Like, I love De Niro. I think he's great. But watching Killers of the Flower Moon, I was like, this is a, a brilliant performance. I love it. And then watching this, I'm like, man, this is so good. And I never really think of Jackie Brown. I, I think he does so much when he's small. Like when he's not, like when he gets to kind of be a little bit more on the side, he kind of thrives as a character actor. I can see that. And there's something kind of interesting in the way this movie is structured where it's not necessarily like jumping back and forth in time that much. You know, it does it when it does that, it does that like really, really deliberately. But it's structured in a way that feels like Pulp Fiction without feeling like Pulp Fiction because Tarantino takes so much time in his De Niro segment at the very beginning, which is like De Niro not saying a word as he's sitting there and Sam Jackson is going on and on about guns. Hi, I'm Sydney. I'm a personal trainer and Miss Orange County finalist. And this And that there is, is a tech man, a little cheap ass spray gun made out of South Miami. They retail for 380, I get them for two, sell them for eight. They advertised this Tech Nine as the most popular gun in American crime. Can you believe that shit? It actually says that in the little booklet that comes with it. The most popular gun in American crime. Like they proud of that shit. I love my Tech Nine. By the way, that video was something that was shot specifically for this film, but it does exist. Videos like this do exist. They have been sold at gun stores for a long time. Quentin Tarantino wanted to make his own uh, version of that. So that is, you know, it's not out, <laughs> yeah. it's not outlandish that something like this actually is happening. Yeah, no, I went through all the actors who are playing the girls with bikinis and the guns there thinking like one of these girls has to be on American Gladiators, but none of those girls were on American <laughs> Gladiators. But one of those girls was in the LL Cool J video for Hey Lover, which is a video that's very much in my heart where the girls walk like around that. the little backpack in the mall. I do just want to say too that that was not directed by Quentin Tarantino. That was directed by an animator and a graphic designer named Norv Ham. Well done, Norv. Uh, but yeah, like you spend so long with with Sam, with De Niro, with Bridget in this like first opening thing, you know, taking its time. You know, the whole little shtick about like the phone rings. Every time it rings, you get sort of tense, but it's also kind of funny. You are there so long that I almost forget that this movie is called Jackie Brown. And then when Jackie comes back in like 27 minutes later, like, oh, right. And then you get half an hour with Jackie. And by the time we're done with this, like first real thing of like Jackie getting arrested, Jackie dealing with Ordell, Jackie setting everything up, then it cuts back to De Niro. And I, by that time, I've forgotten that he's in this movie. Like, it feels like I'm jumping around all these timelines just because Quentin is not feeling pressured to like cut around and cut around and cut around and make sure you remember everybody's there. Well, let's talk about the way that he decided to shoot this movie. I mean, this movie especially in the first half, is 
locked off shots. You know, whether it's uh, Sam Jackson coming to talk to Chris Tucker, that's one shot. He walks up the stairs, has the whole conversation with Chris Tucker, and then until that scene's over, it's one shot. No close-ups. You know, it's in the camera. The same thing for when Sam Jackson gets in the car with him. I think that this movie sets the pace with that opening sequence of Jackie Brown. You see her on that very famous, like, I want to call it a floor escalator, I guess a moving sidewalk that's in LAX. The people it's, mover? Yeah, the people Terminal mover. Terminal 3? You always feel so cool every time you land at Terminal 3. Oh, you love it. It's the best. But... That opening is like, calm down, relax. You are in for this pace. You are watching a woman not running on a people mover. She is standing on it. She eventually starts to run at the end. Again, another kind of one-er as she gets to the gate. I mean, that's a beautifully shot one-er as well. And it's interesting because in my mind, that's what Jackie Brown does in this entire movie. She is standing strong not wavering and moving through these other people. Like there's something about that opening shot as a thesis statement to what this film is. Yeah. I mean, I want to play like a touch of that music and then just picture it and then jump back and keep talking about it. I was the third brother of five doing whatever I had to do to survive. I mean, watching her just stand there so strong, but also seeming like sort of ordinary. You get this time to just take her in, like appreciate her strong profile, appreciate kind of her calm. A lot of what Tarantino was saying he was paying homage to in this was this idea that, you know, her movies in the 70s, a lot of them opened with her like walking toward the camera, really powerful. And here he's like, I don't want her to walk yet. I want to just like take her in. But he is also paying homage to the opening shot of The Graduate, you know, because you remember The Graduate also lands with Dustin Hoffman landing at the airport, also being on the people mover at LAX. If you don't quite remember it here, you can hear the tiniest little clip of it. and You can hear the airport sounds in the back of him as you hear, of course, Simon and Garfunkel. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. So Quentin is kind of like merging all of these like 60s and 70s touchstones and then making it his own, you know, and to shoot this, he had to shoot it with like his cameraman on a a wheelchair. They're like pushing his cameraman around on a wheelchair to try to keep it really smooth. You can see kind of behind the scenes footage where like Quentin is there. He's wearing a backwards black kangle and he just keeps like yelling when it's time for her to run faster and start like going faster and faster and faster. Which also just, I think, has this beautiful idea of what's in the film. You know, this is a woman who looks in control, but in a way she's kind of not in control of her life. She has to get to this gate on time. She's not the powerful woman yet that we want her to be. You know, she's kind of on somebody else's clock. And by the way, while I'm talking about airport people being on somebody else's clock, did you know this thing about airline stewards, which is, you know, they're at the gate when you get there, they're checking you in as she's doing here, you know getting you boarded, helping you carry your bags, helping people arrange it, getting everybody settled. The most stressful time of a flight is, I think, like those early minutes when everybody's trying to get their seat. Did you know that airline stewards don't get paid for that? That they do not get paid their salary or their hourly wage until the doors of the airplane actually close. So that whole boarding stressful time when it's like really the worst, they are not getting any money for that at all. That seems absolutely insane it's insane that's why that's why if you hear of airline strikes happening that is a lot of what's going on 
That is wild to me. <laughs> Looking at this opening sequence and trying to deconstruct why we have that. And, you know, you might just say, well, that's the way 70s movies opened and he's doing an homage to 70s films and that's all it is. But I think that there's more there because I think Jackie is barely getting through life. She understands how the system works and she's just getting by, right? And that's that moment. She's just getting to the terminal at that right point. And she doesn't push herself to get there even earlier. She's just going to get in right under the wire. And she's living this life that one push, one stoplight that she hits the wrong way, she would be late. She would cause a problem. And that's what this movie kind of shows. Like one thing comes loose and she's going down, but she's also smart enough to know it because we know she's world weary. We get that. When she sees the cocaine in the bag that wasn't planted, but was put there, it wasn't hers. When we see her go to prison, there's something about her attitude. She's not fighting the system. She's kind of lost the fight. And I think that that's what's so amazing about this character, because when you see her at the end, it's the first time you really see her kind of light. Right. She's wearing the white blazer, the white shoes. She's like glowing. I love that idea of what you're kind of drawing out there. Because you're right. This is a character who I think like a lot of people, you know, very relatably is like existing right on the margins of getting by in the country, you know, in this country, in this economy. I mean, you hear it even from the way like the ATF agents are kind of dressing her down about her salary. According to this, this isn't the first time that you've run afoul of the law. In 1985, while a stewardess for Delta, you were busted while carrying drugs for a pilot? The pilot was my husband and I got off. You mean they offered you a deal and you grabbed it? He did time, you did probation. I didn't hear you ask permission to smoke in my office. May I smoke? No, you may not. So you get off with a slap on the wrist, but all this criminal activity fucks up your shit for good with the big airlines. Cut to 13 years later, you're 44 years of age, you're flying for the shittiest little shuttle fucking piece of shit Mexican airline that there is. Well, you make what, $13,000 a year? I make 16000 plus benefits. You've been in the service industry 19 years and all you make is 16000 plus benefits? Didn't exactly set the world on fire, did you, Jackie? Yeah, I mean, she has been working her whole life. And this is where it's gotten her, which is not very far, not very no. far. And how, what is she going to do with her future? She has no future in this American economy unless she does something illegal. Well, I also think that when you look at her, she's often in a uniform in this movie. Like she's playing the part of what society wants her to be, right? She's not fully herself. I think, you know, she doesn't wear the uniform the entire time, but a majority of the time we're seeing her in that uniform. Yeah, or a prison uniform, you know. Yes. She goes from like this uniform, prison uniform, back to this uniform. But I also want to draw a comparison to Foley uh, from Out of Sight that George Clooney played. Like there's that moment where he goes for the job interview with Albert Brooks and he's like, just be the security guard. And if you can do that, then you can move up. And it feels to me like Jackie Brown did do that. She agreed, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go straight. It doesn't pay off. In our Out of Sight episode, we talked about, well, if he was patient, maybe he could have gotten ahead of it, but he's not patient. He's a criminal. He had to keep on moving. I think this is a really two people who are smart and approaching it in different ways. Jackie knows she's never going to really get ahead because of what was behind her. So she's going to do this on the side, safe, but illegal thing. And 
Clooney's character is like, I know I'm never going to get ahead. Just let me have fun until it runs out. There's no way out. They're fucked. They are fucked. And they're both dealing with being fucked in very different ways. I think that's so true. You know, and when she's doing that scene with these ATF agents, that very first one, Pam Grier is something that I, as a human with a physical body, find like impossible. You know, it took eight hours to get that scene done. They wanted it to take eight hours in a way so that like Pam Grier could get herself into this headspace where she was like tired and cranky and impatient and barely holding it together. So not only did it take that long, she in that whole time, Pam Grier took no bathroom breaks. Can you imagine eight hours of that sitting there in that scene, kind of intense, trying to do all of these layered emotions of like trying to seem tough, trying to be like, uh, you know, trying to not be like rattled and yet also being so physically rattled that she can't kind of keep it together. I love her sacrifice for that scene. You know, we talk about people gaining and losing 50 pounds, but my God, eight hours, no bathroom breaks on camera. I would absolutely die. But to this whole idea of what you're saying about like the system being broken, there's this moment right after that where I think Tarantino gets that across so subtly, even just with the music, because, you know, she gets through this. Everything's happening. She's put into jail. She gets out. She has a court appointed lawyer who doesn't really care about her because she doesn't have the money to get a good one. And this whole kind of routine about how this country handles people who have done wrong is like underscored in the court to like this ridiculous little music that Quentin Tarantino puts in where the whole thing just feels like like an empty comedy skit, like a silly little play, like nobody is taking her life seriously and that everybody knows how this is going to go. Charge is possession of narcotics with the intent to distribute. How does your client plead? Uh, Your Honor, she wishes to stand mute. Very well. Detective Varga. Targets, Your Honor. Sorry. Uh, You are the arresting officer in this case? That's correct, Your Honor. And do you have a bail recommendation? Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right, but I want to blow it out even wider. I think that this is Elmore Leonard, as seen through the eyes of Quentin Tarantino, saying you are always going to be used by someone. Unless you are using them, they are using you. I mean, whether that's, you know, Beaumont being used by Ordell, whether that's, you know, Ray Nicolette using Jackie, whether that's Jackie using Robert Forrester. Like, even though they do have a connection, like, everybody is disposable. Like, Beaumont dies. You don't see, not that we live with Ray Nicolette and his partner, but they don't seem affected by that at all. You know, the way that Lewis kills Melanie, it's like, yeah, I had to kill her. I, I had to do it. And and then Sam Jackson is like, huh, he's okay with it, ultimately. But then when it comes to money, he's not okay with it. Everyone's okay with it because everyone is using someone else. Melanie's using, you know, Lewis against Ordell. Like, I think it's a grander statement about, I don't think it's about crime. I think it's just about... If you don't stand up for yourself, someone is going to use you for their own end. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I would think I think that the film goes one little hair further and says women, though, are extra disposable. It's subtle, but it's a subtle thing that keeps going on all the way through the movie. Like in that shot you were talking about where Ordell shows up at Beaumont's um, place to like, you know, take him and get him into the trunk. You know, another time in an Elmore Leonard movie that people are in a trunk when they don't really want to be in a trunk. Ordell's Never watching get TV. in a trunk. Never get in the trunk. Ordell's watching TV and listen to it. He's listening to this Tony Curtis interview. My pleasure of living demands that I have a good looking woman. 
that I'm with a good-looking woman. I couldn't go out with a woman old enough to be my wife. Oh, D! And here's what Tony is saying. He is on the Tom Snyder show. And what he's kind of saying right when the scene kind of cuts away and you can't hear him as well is that not only is he only entitled to like beautiful young woman, he would never date a woman who is old enough to be his wife. And that is like this ageism thing that's also going in here. These asses are getting older on their women. You know, they don't want their asses to be getting older. They don't want old women. I do think that celebrity culture plays such a part in the way that people view themselves, right? They they see someone say it and they go, yeah, that's the way I want to live too. And it gets kind of sweetened. You know, we see these relationships in films. I mean, this has been talked about ad nauseum, the age differences between men on film and women that they are having a romantic relationship with in film. And every now and then, when the difference is only like eight or nine years, we're like, oh my gosh. Congratulations. Oh, wow. Tom Cruise is 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 a king. He's only <laughs> only having a relationship with someone eight years his senior. And yeah. Or even, he, even in the other Elmore Leonard film, when we did our Out of Sight episode, I was like, oh, I haven't seen Get Shorty. Uh, but I remember that so much of the buzz around Get Shorty was like, and they cast Renee Russo, a woman in her actual 40s, to romance John Travolta. Right. And it was like the biggest thing in the world. By the way, in the gap between these two episodes, I did finally watch Get Shorty. I didn't love it, in part because I think like Travolta's Chili Palmer is just like the bad version of these cook guys. He's just like, I'm cool. I'm cool, cool, cool. And he doesn't He's a have the sketch weariness. comedy version. Yeah, he doesn't have the weariness of this, you know, the weariness that are in these two movies. But I will say, I will give Get Shorty one point, which is that Rene Russo goes to bed wearing a giant Lakers shirt. Good for you, Rene Russo. Oh, Rene. <laughs> How misguided you are. While we're talking about this kind of dark way of looking at the world, you will be used. You're, you're here when I need you, and then when I don't, I'll discard you. This idea that the system is kind of screwed over people who are trying to, to do better the story of Jackie Brown is a heroic story. She outsmarts everybody. She uses this knowledge. This is what I'm talking about. Like we get that she understands the way the world works. And because of that, and because of the fact she's not reactionary, she's able to manipulate everyone. This is not like the beginning of the master con artist. Like this is someone who uses everything that she knows to get herself out of a situation. Like her whole life has been building up to this moment to outsmart everyone. And she understands each person's motivations enough to get them all to buy in. And as a result, because she knows everything is like this house of cards, it all falls down. It, and it falls down only because she uses everybody's own insecurities and issues against each other. And she just stands and watches people fuck up. Yeah. And you're not totally sure that she's even going to take charge of the situation, that she's not going to be a victim like Beaumont until what? Almost an hour into the movie when like Sam Jackson shows up at her apartment walking across the street, just like Michael Myers in Halloween. After putting on that glove, putting on those gloves yeah. that we know that he's going to use to kill her or strangle yeah. her, or whatever he's going to do. We've taken our time with that Beaumont sequence to know that this guy can kill people right after he's been charming the hell out of them. And then they're doing that little back and forth game in the apartment where like he turns off the lights, she turns on the lights, oh. he turns off the lights. They are actually turning those lights off and on. Like Quentin Tarantino made sure that it wasn't like fake rigged he wanted them to be in control of it even though it made lighting it a lot harder you're like i don't know what is going to happen to jackie we haven't seen in her another example of a scene shot in a wonner 
long scene and we're just watching them move through and it's in the dark and it just, it's electric and the lights, like those lights, those are my first lights, those halogen lamps. I had them in my apartment. Like I, that feeling, that turning of the dial. I mean, this movie <sighs> is taking place in 1995. It feels very timeless. Once you reveal that she's got a gun on his dick and she stole it from Robert Forrester, you're like, okay, I learned a lot about Jackie in this yeah, moment, right? now you know. But I love the way that Quentin handles that reveal, which is we're in the room with them and then he cuts to a split screen of Robert Forrester driving and you're not clearly quite sure why he's bothering to right. do that, why we're going away from this one scene that is so, so tense. But he times it in the editing room. I mean, him and Sally Maggie are just working in concert so that Max looks in his glove box, realizes that the gun is gone right at the same moment that we hear where the gun is. You ain't giving no kind of ass. You scared of me? You got any reason to be nervous around me? Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's a gun pressed up against my dick. <laughs> well, you thought right. Now take your hands from around my throat. I mean, in that scene, I just exhaled. Because you are like, oh, thank God. She has this. And the way that Ordell's coming after, like choking her like that. And and she gets his power back. You know, you're talking about Robert Forrester for a second. I just want to focus on him, too, because we've talked about like the world of crime and people being used in the world of crime. We also have Robert Forrester, who I love this character of Max Jerry. He's the only person to get an Academy Award nomination in this film. Not screenplay. Shocking. Shocking. I mean not it's, Pam, not Sam. I mean Tarantino was mad at the time. He was like, I want a Pam to be the first black actress to win an Academy Award. And she my God, should have gotten she it. I mean should have. But Robert Forrester is awesome in this movie. Yeah. You're talking about like an understated small performance. It is the same thing that is doing. He's just he's listening. You see the age on him. You know, we have this guy who is, is he a good guy? I think he is. He's an honest guy, right? Doesn't do anything weird. He's very straightforward. He's got his rules. He's not easily baited. He's very much like Jackie Brown. Like he's just, when Ordell's in there, just kind of picking at him, you know, asking him about, you know, why he has that picture with his coworker who's black. And he's like, oh, Did yeah. you put that, you know. That's Winston. He works here. Damn, he's a big one, ain't he? Y'all tight? Yeah. But you was boss, though, right? Yeah. That was your idea to take that picture, too, wasn't it? And he just keeps on moving forward. And there's a there's a line, and I'm going to bastardize it a little bit, but there's a line when Ordell asks him, like, what do you think I do? And he's like, look, I think you do this, and I think if you can get away with it, great. Like, he's not trying to be a cop. He's like, if you, if you could get that money... God bless, right? Like, he's got that kind of attitude. He's not judging anyone. And I like that kind of a character here because he's not, he's real, right? He's not a super cop. He's not anything. He's just, he's real. And we see that same moment with Jackie Brown and Ray Nicolette later on in the film when she does, would you ever think about taking that money? And he basically can't even handle that question instead of, thinking that she's trying to make a deal with him, right? Like, she, he's not acting real. Like, he's not giving her that moment. He's not going to show his true hand, where I think that Robert Forrester is being very honest and and being forthright. And I think that that's what makes this whole relationship between them kind of this beautiful, sad, or I guess bittersweet relationship because 
they both are experiencing the same thing. He's retiring from being a bail and bondsman because he's like, why am I doing this? What, to what end? Yeah. I'm sitting in this house. he wants to. Because the first time he's like, oh, something has ignited in me. He's intrigued by her. There's something. He's pulling her out. But what do you think about this relationship? And, and knowing what we know, we just talked about Jackie and how smart she is. You know, I love that kiss at the end. But, you know, I think that you watch Robert Forrester looking at her, trying to feel like, did she play me? Was I just a pawn in this? What do you think? First, I think it's interesting that they're both wanting to retire. And when you do the math, they've both been doing their jobs pretty much the same amount of time. You know, 20 years for a flight attendant, 19 years for a bail bondsman. They're like really in the same period in their life, you know? And I like that they have these conversations about age that are, you know, in part coded. Like when they're talking about the difference between like LPs and CDs and being too old to start your collection over, aka then they start talking about starting their life over. And then her going from there into how do you feel about getting older? And him immediately thinking that she's trying to get a tiny bit of a compliment out of him. You know, you look great. You know, it, it, you know, as we're sort of talking about like the psychology of Jackie Brown and how she knows the score and she knows it's happening and she knows it's going on. She knows this kind of world that she lives in. And I, I respect that her way through it is being a little bit vain. You know, she smokes through this movie in part because smoking keeps her thinner. You know, she worries about the size of her ass. You know, she is trying to play the game that she knows exists. And maybe that's a little bit cynical, but I think it's really, really real. You know, I think they're both just real human beings. He's not this cool badass. She's not a super cool badass. You know, she's not kung fuing anybody. You know, she's not like, you know, grabbing shotguns and like mowing people down. You know, they're coming to this movie as being two realistic people questioning their choices and where they finally find their difference is she starts over again. You know, she feels like she's always been starting over. She doesn't seem that she likes starting over, but at least this time she's going to start over in Madrid. He thinks he's ready to quit, but he's not. When the, when the moment comes to it, he's going to pick up the phone and he's going to take another job. Well, he is because I don't think he trusts her. I think that he's a little bit afraid because I don't think he can read her. He's a character who can read people. I think one of the best moments, going back to that LP conversation, she asks him about his hair. You know, Robert Forrester is a guy who's been losing his hair. He's got hair plugs. And we as an audience understand, yeah, he's got something going on up there. And the way that he just is like, I didn't like it, so I fixed it. That's me. When I look in the mirror, I feel good. That's me. He's doing that for himself. And Jackie Brown is doing it for herself, right? there. Like, yes, you're right. She wants to stay thin. She understands the world. He understands the world, too. His his world isn't to come back at Ordell. Could he come back at Ordell? Absolutely. He understands that's not his place. They understand where their place is, and they work within it. And I think that they find these things to make themselves happy. And I think that at the end of the day, like, he's almost too sincere. Like, he doesn't know if she could really let her guard down to love him. I think that that's what's going on there in that last moment. I think that she is connected to him. I think they share something really special. I think she's open to the idea that maybe she could love him someday. But I also feel like she isn't ready to let down her guard and she may never be able to because she has lived a life where society and everybody she surrounded herself with has tried to fuck her over. That's her cross to bear. And I think she's very honest about that. But I think in a weird way, Max Cherry is more aware of people than she is because he deals with people all the time. And I think he sees her and goes, 
you don't know yet. You don't know. And so I'm going to take myself out of this equation. I think that's why he's like, until something comes along like Jackie Brown, where I can actually have a second act or a third act, he's going to be a bail bondsman. And if he felt it with Jackie, I think he would have left. Right. Because like, it's simpler for him in the movie than it is in the book. I mean, in the book, he's he's actually married, you know, but the marriage is just not going well. And in the book, they also more clearly have sex. But this kind of like vagueness of the ending, I mean, when he asks the person on the phone, you know, hey, can I have 30 minutes? Can I have 30 minutes? Could I excuse myself? Would you call me back in about half an hour? Yes, thank you. I mean, the movie almost lets us hold our breath and think like, oh, is he just going to chase her to the airport? It almost lets us think that maybe he might. It doesn't tell us that he doesn't, but maybe we know better. We're, we're kind of trained, you know, for this like happy ending that we still don't get. I mean, this ending is so much like the out of sight tone and like watching his face go blurry as he's thinking it over is kind of the strongest way that Tarantino, I think, puts his hand on the scale. You know, if it was an abrupt cut, I almost think we'd be more likely to think, oh, he's just, it's action. He's going to get in the car. He's going to do things. He's going to change something. But it doesn't. He kind of fades away and the moment sort of fades away. And then we go to her face and we're watching her face and we're like, is she going to turn around? And she's not going to turn around. You know, if you were going to say which couple is going to get back together, is it this couple or is it going to be out of sight? Well, I could see this couple coming back together because I can see Jackie Brown going away, feeling like she doesn't fit in, coming back here and actually giving it a go. Because immediately what happens to her is she gets the money and she's like, peace, I'm out. It's not like she's running away, but she's starting over again. She is starting over. Based on what I know of her, I don't know if going overseas is going to fix that. I don't know if that's perfect for her. I think it's her dream, yeah, but it may not work out. I don't see her learning Spanish. Yeah. There's like a deleted scene where you're like, oh, she knows a little bit of French. But I think that's like more Tarantino clowning on the idea of like him just loving to have people use French for no reason. And actually, this is almost, I think, maybe even an improv because you can tell in the way that like uh, Michael Keaton starts laughing. I wonder where, uh, wonder where that garçon is. Garçon means boy. Anything else I can get you this can evening? Can you get me a fresh one of those? I think we're out there. Sure. Thanks. Thanks. So what's madame mean? What's the difference between madame and madame? Well, one's mirrored and one's not. Is that right? And one's hotter and the other one's not so hot. So who hits the whorehouse? Who hits the whorehouse? No, who's the head of the whorehouse? The madame. Oh, the, the madam. Madam. Madame and madame and mademoiselle. It's all yeah. different. One's French and one's a hoe. What's madame? <laughs> <laughs> the other part of this, too, is out of sight, she's going to be the law. Like, yeah. these two characters can be together. They just aren't. You know, and I, I feel like the out of sight characters can't be together. She could never what she'd take this criminal to like any work function, do anything. Like she'd have to answer for him at one point. You can't. Yeah. How'd you guys meet? <laughs> yeah. Well, he threw me into a trunk at gunpoint. <laughs> uh, I mean, that is how I met my boyfriend, but you know. <laughs> it, it can work. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these. 
But did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, everybody reading Elmore Leonard, like, yes, the sensationalism of, like, criminal world and and the dangerousness of it. But it really is about people trying to figure out who they are. You know, and I think that, like, Raiden Nicolette represents this idea of, like, I am a good guy. I am a good guy. And I'm going to do the right thing. And that's not wrong. But, you know, it's like he's also not really being honest either. Like, everyone is trying to be something. And it's it's Pam Greer wearing that stewardess costume. It's like... I think everyone's wearing a uniform. And I think actually, if you look at the movie, everyone's kind of in the same uniform all the time, right? Everyone is kind of just wearing variations on the theme of what they've already been wearing. Yeah. How many Kangol hats does Sam Jackson have? They're all pretty yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, you know, Raylan Nicolette is wearing that white shirt, those tan pants. You know, M- Melanie's always in a bikini. Yes, they all have dreams. They all have hopes. They all have wants. But they are in this other world and they got to just do this thing. I mean, that adds then like this extra level to when she changes costumes, when she buys herself a suit, when she's like, I'm going to buy myself some clothes. And the and the lady's like, oh, you look cool. Wow, you look really cool. Yeah. Hey, it looks cool on me, too. <laughs> it looks great. I mean, you wear that suit to a business meeting and you'll be the badass in the room. Yeah, I think I like it. And I like how when this movie structures that, like, wait, let's rewind and see what's going on. No, wait, let's rewind a third time and see what's going on in the scene. They rewind it right to the point where you just get to hear Jackie Brown be told she looks cool three times. Because it's just like, we want to keep hearing that. She looks good when she gets to pick out her own clothes. And I think that that's why the end is so powerful and it's subtle. She's in that white blouse and it's like, whoa, like it's small, right? But it's big. I just want to talk about acting again. You talk about the eight hours of no pee breaks in that scene. You want to talk about like multiple complex things that she's holding. When she starts playing into the I've been robbed, that panic that she's doing that is performative for the ATF while being incredibly duplicitous, like watching her lose it, because I think what you're seeing is here's my performance so I can get out. And also, I am nervous as fucking hell because if this goes south, I'm fucked. There are two things going on there that are really brilliantly played. And so when we talk about that idea of like her not getting nominated, it's like those scenes, those two scenes in particular, like, wow. Because with this character, we never exactly kind of know what she's feeling because she's got to put on this performance of tough. But then on top of that, put on the performance of being like weak and nervous, you know, And it's fascinating because she keeps surprising me in this movie. You know, every single time we cut to like her either with Ordell or her with Ray and she's like, okay, here's what's going on. And she just starts telling them all the truth. You're like, what is she doing? 
You know, she's hiding, but also being honest, but then using this honesty about what's going on to also be like hiding. One of her early scenes that she has with like Max in her apartment when they're talking about like weariness and aging and what are we doing with our lives? On the first take that Pam did one of those scenes, she just started crying. Like she really felt the weariness that Jackie Brown felt and never really getting ahead in this world. In Pam Greer's telling of the story, like she loved that take where she allows Jackie Brown to be vulnerable. And Quentin Tarantino was like, "Uh, can you do it again and not cry? I want you to look a little bit stronger. And if she had her way, I think like Pam Gray would have wanted that crying take. And I'm not going to say I think the crying take would have like tipped this performance over to the edge because if the Academy didn't see it, they didn't see it. Maybe they needed to see that to be able to appreciate this performance. You know, maybe they needed to really get that final crack into where she actually reveals how exhausted she is. You see, I think the Academy is looking at her like Ray Nicolette is looking at her. They're seeing what she's putting out, but they're not looking underneath the surface at all. I think that that's kind of part of it, too. Yeah. And it's all, all, all is under the surface. And I love that you're pointing out how much then we see Max Cherry just look at her. Right. I mean, so many of the performances we've talked about where a man, a male performance just like ascends. A lot of what makes them ascend is the way they look at a woman. And you're just like, wow. You know, he is like staring at her intently. And by the way, sometimes my uncle listens to this episode. Hi, Uncle Sunshine, my uncle who is in Top Gun. And I just need to say, Forrester in this movie reminds me so much of my uncle because that's kind of my uncle's demeanor. (laughs) Like he's ex-military. He's very calm. He's very perceptive. He's very observant. And he's very romantic. The other day, he and my aunt were at my house and I was like running around. I had to take a shower really fast. And I put on some kind of old school Duke Ellington uh, for them without telling them I was putting it on for them. And when I came out of the shower, I swear to God, those two were slow dancing. And that is what makes a male lead. My goodness. I love that. I absolutely love that. I, I think that's what's so great about these two characters is that you see Robert Forrester and Pam Greer connect in these moments, in the in-between. And there's a big plot going on, a big complicated heist. But in the in-between, there is something true happening. I love watching that. It's one of the most romantic relationships I've seen on screen because I feel like you know, we, we're used to seeing a lot of young love. We're used to seeing a lot of like silly rom-com love. There is something less bombastic about it than any other Quentin Tarantino movie. The heist isn't bombastic. The characters aren't bombastic. Like I said, Ordell might be one of my favorite Sam Jackson performances of all time. And it's kind of one of his most restrained. I mean, we talked about Eve's Bayou. We loved him in that. He's great in that. But everyone is on like, like a simmer everyone's yeah. on a simmer. And, and I it's think like th- kept in balance, you know, because this this character Ordell could almost, I think, be kind of too cold, too violent, too cool. But that real stupid goatee, you know, that yeah. real stupid goatee and the pretty dumb ponytail, it takes him down a notch. You know, it oh, makes him it makes him more mortal. By the way, that was all Sam Jackson, that costume. And, you know, costumes were a big part in this. I, I love that when his hair comes down when he's kind of freaking out at the end. Also, costumes got De Niro the part in this film as well, because De Niro asked Tarantino, what kind of shoes am I wearing? And Tarantino had the answer. He was like, you're wearing old black shoes that, you know, were from your trial four years ago and the toe is kind of curled up because they've been shoved in a bag in uh, a locker. So you have this like kind of old shoe doesn't fit really well. And he's like, all right, I'm in. Like he knew that Tarantino was in. And just to kind of bring this out one more step, I know Tarantino talks a lot about 
Paul Schrader and feels like Paul Schrader made some mistakes in Taxi Driver. You know, and the violence here is not, like I said, it's the lowest body count of all of his movies, but I actually think it's one of the more tense films that he's made because you don't know when it's going to pop. You don't know when someone's going to crack, but when they do, it's completely believable. Like I said, I've forgotten that De Niro kills uh, Melanie. And when he does that, you're like, whoa. And he just walks off. And we're not seen in a bloody way. We don't see him shooting her. It's done very bloodless. You know, it's violent when you see Beaumont get shot, but you're watching it from far away and you actually never really look inside that trunk. I think the most blood maybe you see, if I'm getting this right offhand, is like when Lewis is shot in the car. But even then, you're, the camera is behind the car seats. You're not going in and right. like, oh, no, you're seeing look the at the splatter. blood in the stomach. You're seeing the splatter. And like even the death where you're supposed to feel like this is the climactic triumphant one when Ordell gets shot by Ray. Not really. You don't really see the blood, you know. And instead, it's almost like unnervingly quiet. It's not like loud, cool music. It's not anything. Kind of your final register of even this happening is like, you get this corpse eye view of looking up from where Ordell is at Jackie and Ray having this conversation. And the music is so quiet. Talk about music at a simmer. It's just creepy. Ray. Remember when you said you hope you get in before it gets me? Mm-hmm. Well, you did. Thanks. Like, Tarantino is not letting us cheer. He's not letting any of this feel, like, easy or like, yeah, good job. You know, it's not like a tragedy that Ordell's killed. He's hitting this fascinating tone here. It's funny. I had watched Last Action Hero this week. And part of that movie, just to refresh your memory very quickly. Actually, I've never seen it. So tell me everything. I would like you to watch it. I'd love to talk to you about it. Because it's actually (laughs) a movie that I think is really interesting. But it's reverse Purple Rose of Cairo. Um a kid goes into a Schwarzenegger movie. And then in the third act, the characters from the Schwarzenegger movie come out into the real world. And the villain in the Schwarzenegger movie, there's a great scene where he is in New York City and he's like, oh, I can do bad things and no one will stop me here because the police are too busy. And he just goes up to a random person and kills them. And then goes, uh, police, police, I just shot someone. Hello. And no, nothing happens. It's such a dark moment. There's some tonal inconsistencies Oof. with that movie. But, you know, it's this idea of like the violence here. It's like, oh, yeah, he shoots her in the parking lot and he walks away. You know, it's like the cops aren't there. Like there's something so realistic about the brutality in it. And no one's coming like Ordell walks away from that that van. They don't get him. Right. Like they don't they don't know where he is. He walks away. And I think that that's what you're also seeing like all this violence is happening around and and in the margins. There's such a transactional nature to the violence in this movie. You know, it's in a world in which you can get away with this for the most part, right? It's even hard to bust Ordell because if Ordell had his way and Jackie was a little bit weaker, she would have been killed too. And no one would have figured out who was trafficking that money. Yeah, you don't really think that like, Ray is going to go on the war path. Like, I know know this guy had something to do with it. He can't. Yeah, doesn't care. And he can't. And he can't. It's not as like it's not his terrain, and it's not going to be like Max's train. It's not going to be anybody's train. It's going to be like clown show music, like you have at the back of the court case, and nobody's going to do anything. 
or, or actually, wait, that makes me think of like the poster that's in the back of, of Max Cherry's office, even, you know, here is Max Cherry. His whole life is dealing with criminals in the law system. What does he have in the back of his office? He has a circus poster because this whole thing is just a clown show. There is some controversy. And again, with Quentin Tarantino, I never know who to believe. But uh, the Jackie Brown of it all, right? You know, why is she called Jackie Brown, right? In the novel, it was Jackie Burke. Um, you know, Foxy Brown was a character that that Pam Greer played. But Tarantino says the actual reason for changing the main character's name to Jackie Brown from Jackie Burke was due to his fandom of the Peter Yates film, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which featured a flamboyant and cocky arms dealer named Jackie Brown, whose characteristics and behavior were the inspiration for both the book and the film version of Ordell Robbie. And the author of Jackie Brown's source material, Elmore Leonard, said uh, he was a noted George V. Higgins fan and claims that that film was one of his inspirations, uh, Higgins being the author of the book, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. So I thought that was interesting. I always thought it was like a Foxy Brown riff. This might be one of the things I'll like chalk up to legend. I mean, this whole thing is like legend. Like Pam Greer has told me three different stories about how she even got cast in this movie. Like one version is that like Quentin Tarantino like walks up to her in traffic while she's driving on Highland Boulevard, like in traffic, like walks into traffic because he sees her in a car and like shakes her hand and is like, hey, I'm writing something for you. Another version is like he sends her the script, but she doesn't know about it because he sends the script 44 cents short of postage. And so it doesn't get delivered until she like finds out that she owes the post office like 44 cents. And by that time, he's like, I didn't think you wanted to do the movie anymore. You know, there's another version where like, you know, he sends it to her, but she's too nervous to call him. So she doesn't. And then he thinks she's not going to do it. There's another version where he sends it to her and she thinks that he's going to call her. And then she realizes he wrote his number on the back of the script. And then she calls him later. I mean, it's just like nine million print the legend well, things. And then here. there's also like she auditioned for Pulp Fiction for the part that Amanda Plummer had. She didn't oh, yeah. get it. You know, he's uh, like, yeah, nobody's going to slap you around. I don't believe that Eric Soltz would slap you around. And then also that she thought she was going to be Melanie. Yeah, because she didn't assume that he would write a part that big for her. Yes. I believe that, yes, this could be a very deep cut. But then I also believe, how is this not also a deep cut or a light cut, a surface level, top level cut, like reference to Foxy Brown? Because like when we're doing that sort of cut back and forth, cut back and forth, how are they pulling off this thing? And so much of the tension of how it's working is like, we don't quite know at the beginning, like, wait, why did she leave all the money in the changing room? Like, it makes me nervous. And when you finally get to like the third flashback where you see Max Cherry go into the room and get the money out, the harpsichord thing here, that is um, from the soundtrack of Coffee. And God, it's so fucking cool. Excuse me? My wife thinks she left a bag of beach towels in the fitting room. Yeah, I think they're there. Go get them. There's nobody in there. Thanks. Last stop. He even goes one step further when Pam Greer is going into jail, right? That sequence where she's walking in. She's walking into this song sung by Pam Greer. That is a young Pam Greer who released that track when she was, you know, in her 20s. And she is scoring her own scene. Okay, but also, then there's the second level of, like, Jackie Brown naming coincidence, which is that the casting director of Jackie Brown is named Jackie Brown. Like, spelled like J-A-K-I, Jackie Brown. 
who is a casting director who has actually cast a lot of movies we have done on this show. You know, she did Hollywood Shuffles, Stand and Deliver, Cool Runnings, Eve's Bayou. Mm. And so people were like, did Quentin Tarantino cast Jackie Brown to cast his movie because her name is Jackie Brown? And when I went looking for an answer for this, I found that somebody asked that question to Quora, you know, which is almost entirely a useless website. Um, But they asked Quora if the name was a coincidence and Jackie Brown herself answered it. She wrote it and she said, I never asked Quentin, but I was nominated three times for primetime Emmys. And I'm going to say that is why I was hired to cast this movie. All right. Well, there we go. I mean. This movie has a great list of woulda, coulda's, whatever. You know, he offered the role of Ray Nicolette to John Travolta, kind of bring him into the fold, like the way that Sam Jackson was in it. But Travolta was like, no, I don't want to do that, you know, which is so interesting because I think he would have been great. But I'm so psyched that Keaton came in. And Keaton notoriously was very uh, like, don't cast me, don't cast me, don't cast me. I'm the wrong guy for it. I'm the wrong guy for it. I'm the wrong guy for it. And he said that, you know, he tried so hard to not do this film. uh, And then his really kind of perfect in it. Yeah. I mean, the story is like Tarantino went and got him really, really drunk on Jägermeister. And that's why he said yes. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and I think De Niro had a hard time with Tarantino because I think Tarantino doesn't like bow down to big stars. I think he feels like, you know, bringing them into his sandbox. He's going to work them. But I think he let De Niro stew a lot more than De Niro was used to. And so some of the stuff I read was that, you know, there was a little tension between them because he didn't know what Tarantino wanted. But I've also talked to some people who've told me that he would give De Niro these notes, small, the smallest notes, just ideas like, like that shoe thing to help him find his way. And I think in a, in a weird way, a, a character that's that quiet, it's such an internal character. So if you feel like De Niro is in his head a little bit and unsure of what's going on, that's what Lewis is. Lewis is, who is that? What's going on? Okay, I'm going over here. I'm being yelled at. Okay, like there's an energy to him. Like he's like a dog. Like it's hard to confuse one of the greatest living actors, you know, like to make them feel like they're not getting enough. But I think that actually really helps that performance. Yeah, and it's interesting because Sylvester Stallone, like talking about legends, has tried to say like, oh, oh no, no, yeah. I was offered that part, which I do not believe, honestly. One reason why I don't believe it is, you know, Robert De Niro was paid $1 million for being in this movie, which is extra huge when you consider that the budget for Jackie Brown was only $12 million. I feel like if you're going to give one actor one twelfth of your budget, he's definitely your pick and not Sylvester Stallone. You think that's fair? You know what? Here's what I'll say. From the man who cast John Travolta in Pulp Fiction, I buy that Stallone was on the docket somewhere. Because in his mind, he's like, I will do for Stallone what I could do for Travolta. Because you got to remember, Travolta comes back and creates a whole new career. Docket, yes. I'll go with Docket, but I won't go top. I won't go, I won't go Stallone rejected him. There's a couple things that I know about Stallone. He makes terrible choices and he doesn't trust people. And I could see him not wanting to play this part because it's not a big part. It could seem not wanting to play this part because he was nervous. Like Stallone is in this point in his career making all the wrong choices. That all that being said, Stallone has the right look to be like a body, like a bruiser. That's what he is, right? He, like that's what, you know, De Niro is muscle. Like he's not the brains. I would have liked to have seen that 
But De Niro is doing something completely different too. Like he's old. He's like, you could say at one point, we know De Niro for what he was, like that he was a little bit different. But this is like the paunchy, doped out, burnt out version of this character. And in a weird way, I would have felt less shocked seeing Stallone kill Melanie than De Niro kill Melanie because I think that there's a little bit more heart to De Niro. I think that's fair. And talking about this and rewatching it again, I, I, I'm thinking about Pulp Fiction and, and I, I keep on thinking about that idea of like, what was the response to this movie? Like what, you know, we were talking about these actors that he pulled out, these people that we were seeing in different ways, creating this brand new style. It made me think we should revisit uh, Pulp Fiction. So, you know, if you're a new listener to the show and you haven't heard our Pulp Fiction episode, here's a little taste of what we were talking about in that episode about Quentin Tarantino's second film and how it kind of took the world by storm and, and the actors and how it kind of changed the game. You know, this dancing, a lot of people say that it was because of Travolta himself, that Quentin wanted to make him dance. But the true story is, of course, that like Quentin was just really, really influenced by the French New Wave. And this was his ode to a band apart. And I think a lot of people might know that intellectually, but I wanted to play a bit of that dancing from a band apart just to hear the groovy music. Apparently, uh, John Travolta won a twist contest when he was eight years old. And he still knew all these cool dances. So while they were doing the dance number, he taught Uma all these dances. And then Tarantino would just yell out what he wanted them to do. He'd be like, hitchhiker, Batman. It's a very unique dance. I don't know if this it's an award-winning dance, but <laughs> but they seem so in sync with each other. And I think this is like the most interesting relationship in the film because you're watching these two people. He saves her life. Yeah, as we're heading into award season now in full tilt, and we're thinking about like who got nominated, who didn't get nominated, you know, Quentin Tarantino winning best screenplay for this, and that being his only Oscar all the way up until Django Unchained, where he finally wins another screenplay Oscar, but never has won best director, a thing I still think is completely crazy. And if we go through his whole career never giving this man a best director Oscar, that just seems like the most insane thing in the world. But then, I mean, his 10th movie could be like his absolute worst movie. And I feel like we just have to give him the award at that point. It'll be like the Robert Downey Jr. winning for Oppenheimer Award, which I find so irritating and so inevitable, I think. But don't you think that there's like this energy of like, well, but just wait, just wait. The next one's around the corner. And then what happens is a new shiny object comes in. Like, ooh, who's this young person? We're, you know, it's like very rarely do screenplay awards get I think, given to the right people. They elevate some people. And then there are these like, oh, no, you always get nominated for screenplay. You're always in the mix. You're always there. And it's like, and it's a bummer with Quentin Tarantino because his scripts are great. You know, we talked about it earlier in the podcast. The True Romance script sold simply with his face on the cover. I bought Quentin Tarantino scripts from New York vendors that are out on like card tables because it's like, oh my gosh, I could read this. And like reading his scripts are great and they're fun reads and they're just exciting. They're written so well. It's true. And yet, like I would say we've taken a lot of screenwriters for granted, like Charlie Kaufman, who I think we're just like, oh, he's a screenwriter. And we don't even really let him fully be in the box of director, which as a Synecdoche New York head makes me very upset. We know so much that Tarantino is a great director. And yet, that statuette is eluding him. It kind of makes you think you can give everybody the finger now. I get it. I get it. Yeah. I mean, look, the Academy Awards are interesting, right? 
It's a lot about what is hot in the moment, what can ride a wave of popularity. You know, if something comes out early, comes out later, there are differences. I remember everyone talking this year about air being the movie and it came out too early. So it's kind of lost its steam or its air. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's kind of fascinating to look at the Academy Awards, look at what won, look at what was going on in that moment. These movies that took our popular culture by storm. I would love that. I would love to do a tiny little runner leading up to the Academy Awards about like best picture winners. You know, yeah, maybe good, maybe bad, maybe right on, maybe uh, overlooked. I mean, the one that I kind of want to start with, though, is a best picture winner that won everything. Basically, it's here, like swept, killed it, dominated, got on the AFI list, then got kicked off the AFI list. It is a movie I've been dying to see again. Let's do Amadeus. Oh my gosh, I love this. And by the way, when you finally watch Last Action Hero, one of the funniest runners is about Amadeus. <laughs> is it really? It really is. It Whoa. is one of my favorite jokes in the movie that comes back multiple times. Okay, this is great. I like us kind of looking at Academy Awards in a different way. We'll be getting some bangers, I think. I mean, I'm excited about Amadeus. I I, I haven't seen that movie in such a long time, so Me I'm too. excited. We've been like to kind of in the zone of like F. Murray Abraham comic roles. Uh, uh, let's go back yeah. to like ooh, really, Sorry. really career launching one. Okay, great. So you can get Amadeus wherever you get uh, your streaming media. You also check out your local public library. I'll let everybody know that uh, we are back in the t-shirt business. If you go to tpublic.com uh, slash stores slash unspooled, you will see our Art of Schwing. That is our uh, Wayne's World tribute shirt that we have made. It is up. It is available. It may even be on sale. You can get it as a sticker, a mug, a sweatshirt, a hoodie, whatever you want. We got the image. You can put it on whatever you choose. Uh, also, let everybody know that my book is still available to pre-order, and I'll probably be saying that a lot. But uh, you can always get it wherever you get your books or just go to my website, paulshear.com or unspooled.com. You can see a link to how to get that there. Pre-ordering is important, people. Um, okay, Amy, I think we have done it. We have done two Elmore Leonards. I kind of want to do five more, but uh, I, I think these are the two best. I'm definitely not doing it shorty, man. I'm definitely not. <laughs> All I will well, say about Get Shorty is I understand which director went and made Men in Black. You know, if we are talking about Get Shorty, I just want to nod uh, at all the people online who are telling me I misjudged Wayne's World 2. Some people say it's a trash can fire. Other people say it's funnier than the first one. So I don't know. One of these days, I'm going to get around to watching it after I see Fair Play. I want to see Fair Play first. You have to see Fair Play. Fair Play is so good. I can't oh, wait. That movie got really overlooked. Oh, my goodness. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com.
Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.